0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Tortoise.
2: I'm David Aronovich from Tortoise, and this is Eight Years Hard Labor, Episode 3, Oh Jeremy Corbyn, from Glastonbury to Salisbury. I think it's fair to say that 2016 is a year
3: that will live long in all our memories. It
2: saw 12 months of enormous change, not just in Britain, but around the world. New Year 2017, and Jeremy Corbyn is in a chill place. We're the party that listens to you and makes Britain better. Let's do that together in 2017. Twice winner... Of the Labour leadership election, the chicken coo seen off, the man they call the magic grandpa is secure in his job. His members adore him. His MPs and the public, not so much. Cat Neelan was there.
1: So, as I recall, in January of that year, two Labour MPs resigned, uh, one of whom was the MP for Stoke, Tristram Hunt. He was charming, pretty young, and seen as a possible future cabinet minister, maybe even leader. But anyway, it wasn't to be. He packed in politics and went off to become director of the VA. and a And Jamie Reid, the uh, Blairite MP for Copeland in the Lake District, also threw in the towel. Although they were the only ones to stick their heads above the parapet at this point, they weren't the only ambitious and capable MPs who had decided that Labour would never see power in the near or medium term future, that Labour would be in the wilderness for so long that it wasn't worth sticking around. And the polls were not good for Labour. Many showed the Conservatives 20 points ahead throughout this period. And so, stay or not, backbenchers were starting to question if Labour was the right home for them.
2: At the end of February, two by-elections were duly held. In Copeland, Labour were defeated by the Tories, the party's loss also being the first gain for a governing party in a by-election for 35 years. Strangely, it was the Stoke election that got the most attention. Labour held on, but the Conservatives came a poor third.
1: Snell, Gareth, Labour Party, 7,800.
2: But over the last few weeks, a city dubbed by some as the capital of Brexit has once again proven to the world that we are so much more than that. Brexit was casting a long, deep shadow on English politics. Theresa May, inheriting a slim majority, was struggling with the biggest strategic policy change in half a century. On March 17th, Parliament agreed to invoke Article 17 of the Treaty on European Union, and the clock on Britain's departure started ticking. But still, without anyone having agreed what departure would look like. The shadow Brexit secretary was down among the weeds with his opposite number. If you'll make a statement on progress of the Brexit negotiations between the UK and the European Union.
4: The Brexit in the European Union.
2: Yeah. Thank you, thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh,
0: negotiations regarding our exit from the European Union are ongoing as we speak. Indeed, we're in the middle of an ongoing round, and as such I have to be a bit more circumspect than usual. No? We held further talks in Brussels over the past few days and progress has been made. But we've not yet reached a final conclusion. However, however, I believe I believe we are now close to
2: conclusion. There was no need for an election before the summer of twenty twenty. But in mid-April, the PM and her advisers looked at the polls, looked at the problems her narrow majority was giving her, and made a decision. She'd go for it.
5: I have just chaired a meeting of the Cabinet, where we agreed that the government should call a general election to be held on the 8th of June.
2: To many of us observing politics, it looked like a good call. In Corbyn's office, where Andrew Fisher was head of policy, the decision seemed solid.
6: I mean, she had, you know, incredible personal ratings. I mean, I remember going through it with, you know, the people who were doing our polling at the time. There was not a weakness on her polling. It was incredible. You know, there wasn't like, here's the floor in her. It was her, her personal ratings were up there at the beginning of the campaign. It's, it seems hard to remember that now, given how quickly they then fell. But, you know, so they ran a very presidential campaign around Theresa May, strong and stable in the national interest. Um, which didn't last the duration of the campaign, obviously. We had a meeting, um, must have been the 19th of April, and they were all doom and gloom, we're going to lose, it's about how many seats we can save.
2: Three weeks later, the losses looked almost certain when, in that May's local elections, Labour lost nearly 400 council seats and the Conservatives gained nearly 600 and took the Metro mayoralties in Tees Valley and the West Midlands. Labour seemed doomed. Even so, some constitutional niceties had to be observed.
6: At one o'clock in the morning, an email landed in my inbox from the senior civil service saying, I'm just opening a channel of communication about what would happen if we transit, you know, if we were, if we were an incoming Labour government. And I think there was an initial kind of perfunctory meeting in May when we were still at you know, the beginning of May when we were still probably about 20 points behind and they were just doing it out of politeness and, you know, constitutionally we have to meet you and humour you. And then things started to change.
2: First, on the streets.
5: Thank you, Gated. Thank you, the North East. Thank you, those who
2: have come across the river from Newcastle. The bridge unites us, the politics unites us, the future gives us hope in unity.
6: And I remember going to Gateshead with him after the manifesto was all done and dusted. There were 8,000 people, it was raining. People, 8,000 people standing in the rain. And I remember standing next to a, you know, a senior broadcast journalist at the time and him saying, I've never seen anything like this. And then in
2: the polls, The manifesto was seen as a crock the tory double digit leads evaporated the civil servants returned and met andrew fisher and carrie murphy the executive director of jeremy corbyn's office
6: and on the day of the election actually the morning of the election carrie and i had met with them um, in whitehall and had those discussions because they realized the polls were closing and it was genuine i forget which result it was after but there are a couple of results that were slightly better than the opinion poll just you know for a minute there were others that then were brought it back as well um and they just and they clearly thought whoops we might be in a in a world where labor is the only party that can form a government and so uh, you know i remember phoning up Karen, going have you checked your emails and she said no and i said check them i said you, you're gonna you're gonna scream <laughs> and she did um because <laughs> for a minute there it was it was very touch and go
5: and what we're saying is the conservatives are the largest party Note, they don't have an overall majority at this stage. 314 for the Conservatives, that's down 17. 266 for Labour, that's up 34.
2: May hadn't got her bigger majority, she'd lost it altogether. The Tories were down 13 seats. Labour was up 30 on a 40% share of the vote. Eight short of a majority, May would now be dependent upon the Democratic Unionist Party of Northern Ireland to be able to govern.
5: I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, and I will now form a government. As we do, we will continue to work with our friends and allies in the Democratic Unionist Party in particular.
2: Gavin Barwell was a close associate of the PMs. I basically think Theresa was effectively done for from the
7: moment of that election result, because it created a parliamentary arithmetic where
2: there wasn't a majority for any form of Brexit. Meanwhile, in Labourland, bliss was in that dawn to be alive.
5: It was
8: dismissed as merely an internal Labour revolution of left-wing party activists, but it grew
2: and it grew.
8: It
0: became a popular...
2: Matt Zab cousin had left the Leader of the Opposition's Office, or Lotto as it's known, that March, but was in touch with his old comrades. When it's
7: you against the world and you start to make progress, it feels so, so good. It feels like you're fighting this uphill battle with you know, the field tilted against you is still managing to make progress and speak to people outside of this Westminster bubble where you feel like it's the whole world when you're there, but it's not. I think one of the interesting dynamics of the whole project was how from 2016 to 2017 there was that siege mentality which, which gave us a real edge, it gave us that kind of insurgency factor. We felt like, let's just, let's just go for it. We took more
2: risks, we, we trusted our instincts more. For some Labour MPs, however, such triumphalism was misplaced. West Streeting had been returned for
3: Ilford North. I mean, looking at some of the reaction of the loyalists at that time, you know, you would have thought that Labour had won the general election, but Jeremy Corbyn was such a kind man that he'd let Theresa May stay in number 10 because she happened to live there and he didn't want to put her out. It was just nonsense. Um, it was not a close um, election. There was a significant gap between Labour and the Conservatives. Um, Theresa May had not done as well as she had hoped, and Labour not, had not done as badly as had been expected for a number of reasons, partly just how dreadful the Tory manifesto and campaign was, the worst election campaign the Conservative Party has ever fought.
2: But for many Labour supporters, people like Wes Streeting were pooping on a party they were absolutely determined to have.
0: Here he is, Jeremy Corbyn!
5: Look on the wall right over there
2: that surrounds this wonderful festival. Barely three weeks after the election, the leader of the opposition pitched up among the tents at Glastonbury and begat a chant. Oh, Jeremy
0: Corbyn! Oh, Jeremy Corbyn! good <laughs> oh, oh, Mr Corbyn. Oh, Corbyn. Oh, Corbyn!
2: Older, wiser Corbynites such as John Lansman shook their greying locks, albeit only when alone.
4: I always, you know... Uh, you know, privately feel a sense of horror when I uh, hear or heard at the time the cries of ooh, Jeremy Corbyn. And, you know, and seeing it at Glastonbury was, you know, I mean, it was just utterly the wrong approach. And it's not what the Jeremy of 2015 would have seen happening or would have wanted to happen. But, you know, I suppose if you're doing a really, you know, gruelling job which you don't really want to do then adoration uh, might be a welcome thing and I think he probably did grow to like it a bit or it was a it was a relief Uh, but of course the combination of uh, venom from one side and adoration from the other uh, is not healthy in any for any individual or indeed any party.
2: For Paul Mason, another Corbyn supporter, events had ushered an unwelcome presence into the room. Hubris. It teed up what should have been a next
0: phase for Corbynism. And, you you know, at this point, you had some of the naysayers... Senior politicians, ex senior politicians, senior journalists saying, "You know what? I think we might have been wrong about Corbyn. He's actually done a, a decent job during this uh, election. And the the thing to do would have been to open one's kimono to 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 that's a Japanese thing uh, to, to to allow to to allow them in. And instead, uh, I think something triggered the opposite. And riding alongside Hubris was Len McCluskey, and I think there's a fair degree of evidence." that from that moment on, on, Unite the Union, basically decided, well, this is our project. It only works when we run it our way efficiently with union people who know what they're doing. Enough of all this kind of people's quantitative easing and the world transformed. It works when it's done in a kind of left bureaucratic way. So we're going to do it.
5: Thank you.
2: Let everyone understand this. We've come this journey not to let you down, because we listen to you, because we believe in you. Labour can and Labour will deliver a Britain for the many,
0: not the few.
2: It was in triumphant mood that the leader, once so reviled as a loser, addressed his party conference that autumn. However, over in John Macdonald's office, his principal advisor, James Meadway, was worried. I mean, the, the point where I, I should have realized a
8: little bit more of this, I mean, there's a sort of Greek tragedy to the to the whole thing, that, that what ultimately did for the Corbyn project was potentially something a bit like hubris. Like the 2017 party conference, which was a golden opportunity, really, to speak to like the entire country, because suddenly everyone would be listening to you and taking you seriously. And this would be when you lay out what your plans for the future would look like, which actually generally speech did. I mean, it was a great length, but it was all bonk, bonk, bonk. But the general atmosphere around this was like... You know, we are the champions, and people just parading around a place like they've won the bloody election. Of course, we hadn't. If you go and look at what the Tories did, you know, our version of the 2017 election was, hey, we almost won. Next time, we're just kind of going to win because we're great. The, 20, the Tory reaction, if you go and read Conservative Homes in 2017, and 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 look at what MPs were talking about and, and yeah, senior figures in the party were talking about, was utter disbelief and shock and horror that they almost lost to Jeremy Corbyn. So, what
2: do we do to make sure that never ever happens again? For those in Labour who had always opposed Corbyn, the outlook was now clear and horrible. Ben Bradshaw,
7: well, I think I was feeling that um, we were stuck with him again for at least another Parliament, and at that stage we assumed the Parliament would go five years, even though Theresa May had lost her, lost her majority. Um, uh, so. There was no point, really, in continuing to agitate against Jeremy Corbyn's leadership or to criticise it. You just had to live with it. And if if your main strategic objective was to try to move the Labour Party into a place where we were at least beginning to discuss the possibility of having a policy in favor of giving the public a further confirmatory vote on whatever Brexit deal uh, the Theresa May government came up with. For me, that was the number one single most important thing to do. And nothing else mattered as far as the national interest was concerned, in my view. We were stuck with Corbyn. So let's just try and make this Brexit as least damaging as possible, or even better, give the public a referendum on the
8: upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
2: Deal. Five weeks after the election, the Brexit Secretary David Davis had introduced a bill into the Commons that, in essence, left it to government to decide what, from now on, Brexit would be like. In mid-December, the new Parliament, in effect, told him to go to hell.
3: The eyes to the right, 309. The nose to the left, 305. and five. Four votes in it. <laughs> if I do that, you explain
2: it to us. That's yes, 309. No, 305. And of course, the uh, noes are the government. Amendment seven has passed. The government is defeated. The uh,
4: sure e- you know, call-
2: new year 2018 began with the government looking weak and unstable. Sir Keir Starmer sounding to many like the small voice of reason on Brexit, and Jeremy Corbyn still basking in his unexpected electoral success. Nearly two years after the referendum, uh, the Cabinet is fighting over two customs options, neither of which, frankly, are workable, neither of which are acceptable to the EU, and if either of which were put to the vote in Parliament, uh, they probably wouldn't carry... But in true War of the Worlds fashion... Someone in a far-off country made a decision which upended everything. Double agent Sergei Skripal was arrested.
7: It was done publicly on the streets of Russia in full view of the TV cameras. When he collapsed under the influence of an unknown substance 14 years later, it happened out of the spotlight in the back streets of a quiet English cathedral city. Leaving the question now, did one lead to the other?
2: Who done it? Who but the people who'd done it before in 2006 to Alexander Litvinenko?
5: There is no alternative conclusion other than that the Russian state was culpable for the attempted murder of Mr Skripal and his daughter and for threatening the lives of other British citizens in Salisbury, including Detective Sergeant Nick Bailey. The United Kingdom will now expel 23 Russian diplomats who have been identified as undeclared intelligence officers.
2: It seemed pretty obvious to everyone, or almost everyone.
5: How has she responded to the Russian government's request for a sample of the agent used in the Salisbury attack to run
0: its own tests?
7: I used to sit in there, there's a box in the House of Commons where civil servants are allowed to sit who are supporting the Prime Minister. I used to sit in there for these big set-piece statements. And it was I got quite emotional actually it was incredibly powerful just Labour MP after MP got up and disassociated themselves from what Corbyn had said and supported the Prime Minister and yeah you know, I, I remember talking to her about it when we when we were going back down the street afterwards it was quite moving to see that response
3: I I couldn't believe what I was hearing um it just seemed to be so hopelessly naive it was an attack on innocent people on British soil I don't As far as I was concerned, that was when he proved beyond doubt he was unfit to be Prime Minister.
2: If what Corbyn had said seemed just odd, the way it was explained by his Director of Communications appeared far worse. Cat Neelan was there.
1: Huddles are what we lobby journalists call the briefings given after certain moments in the Commons, usually PMQs, but also the budget, or significant moments like the Salisbury poisonings. And this particular huddle is etched on my mind. It was one of the strangest moments I can recall in what was a very odd period. We had all gathered in the room just outside the press gallery to try and understand better what the leader of the opposition was trying to say. Here, it's safe to say, any attempt at nuance was completely thrown out the window. Seamus Milne told us there was a problematic history in relation to the intelligence surrounding weapons of mass destruction, which was used as the rationale for invading Iraq and that more evidence was needed before responsibility could be apportioned to the Russian state. There wasn't quite a gasp, but I do remember a sort of murmur and more questions being thrown at him, trying to make sure that he was really saying what we thought he was saying, expressing not just scepticism, but outright cynicism about Western intelligence and authorities more general. We have in the UK the convention that you don't name spokespeople who are theoretically the conduits relaying the thinking of ministers and leaders. But in this case, it felt like Seamus Milne was so instrumental in the thought process that the convention was broken by multiple outlets, starting with, I believe, the press association.
3: We saw that and I think that that, that confirmed to us that what Jeremy had said in the chamber wasn't poorly judged. It was actually Um, It was actually carefully worded to provide a public-facing line that was only mildly better than the appalling line that was being briefed by the communications director.
0: Responding uh,
3: with strength and resolve
0: when your country is under threat is an essential component of political leadership. There is a Labour tradition that understands that and it has been understood by Prime Ministers of all parties who have stood at that dispatch box.
6: The storm came pretty quick from other members of the Shadow Cabinet, I seem to remember. And there was a meeting to try and iron out lines that everyone could live with between the relevant people, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, the Shadow Defence Secretary, Jeremy.
2: That was a disaster too, as Cat discovered.
1: Just hours after Jeremy Corbyn had pointedly refused to side with Theresa May in blaming the Russian state, Shadow Foreign Secretary Emily Thornberry gave a lecture on human rights and foreign policy at the TUC headquarters in central London. Here she took a very different line and said there was prima facie evidence that the Kremlin was responsible. Nia Griffith, the Shadow Defence Secretary, gave an interview with broadly the same message. What I've been told is that they were then summoned into a lotto for what one source described as a dressing down the following morning. Apparently, by now, this was par for the course, although it would never be Jeremy Corbyn himself during the shouting. But that morning, John McDonnell publicly backed the pair of shadow ministers, saying that Labour supported Theresa May and blamed the Kremlin. Apparently, at this point, Nia and Emily wanted to know if John would be joining them for their browbeating. The meeting was quietly dropped.
2: If there were lessons to be learned, Jeremy Corbyn seemed determined not to learn them. On the 15th, a piece by him appeared in The Guardian, in which he invented a possible culprit other than Putin.
3: The public should be able to expect calm heads and a measured response from their political leaders. To rush way ahead of the evidence being gathered by the police in a fevered parliamentary atmosphere serves neither justice nor our national security.
2: That day, Keir Starmer was on the train to Dover where he was due to appear on a Brexit special edition of the BBC's Question Time. During the trip, Corbyn's office called and read out the piece to him. Starmer's aides wondered what he was going to say when, as was inevitable, he was asked about it. I trust our security services, he replied. I know when they're right. This was an
8: appalling uh, attack um, using military-grade nerve agents
2: in a town, Salisbury. It could have been any town. It could have been here. And it deserves to be condemned by all of us without reservation. Even Corbyn's oldest ally, John McDonnell, went into damage limitation mode.
3: Unlike the chief of strategy for Jeremy Corbyn, Seamus Mill, you, you have an unambiguous view that Putin is a dangerous and bad well, leader. That's
4: exactly what we've all said. and You, you mentioned Seamus Mill, that's exactly what he said as well. He's repeated time and time again that we support exactly what the Prime Minister said and we condemn Russia for this, condemn them.
2: Over a week after Salisbury, the Labour leader was going on national news media to argue that samples of the Novichok should be sent to Russia for analysis. I also asked that the Russians be given a sample so that they
7: can say categorically one way or the other, this issue isn't going to go away um, anytime
2: soon, but we have to make sure it never happens again. Because of the huddle incident, plenty of dismayed Labour people have been pointing the finger at the Putin-friendly figure of Seamus Milne. But that never quite washed close Corbyn allies, like Sam Tarry, knew that Corbyn himself was the problem. Although I'd obviously had that early experience with, with Corbyn uh, around the Iraq
8: war, I think that, you know, some things from his kind of ideological past kind of kind of fell out of the cover. So his reluctance to kind of, you know, I guess for him, when you've got this worldview, and it's not mine by the way, but when you have this worldview of sort of West, you know, imperial powers versus other power bases globally, his reluctance to be able to just straight away just sort of say hey russia you know this is our national sovereignty your stick do you know what I mean and that that, that what sorry, not not reluctance but like the, the hesitation the hesitation to really come out strongly on that was again then obviously used as a stick to beat him
2: Corbin had provided the stick and obstinately refused to have it taken away such obstinacy was bad enough when it came to salisbury but things could only get worse
5: and then i approached him and the last thing i said to myself was do swear because you undermine the strength of, of the words you say so i i called him an anti-semitic racist i said he'd made the labour party a hostile environment for jews
2: coming up in eight years hard labor jeremy and the jews Eight Years Hard Labour was written and reported by me, David Aronovich. Additional reporting was by Cat Nealon. It was produced by Valerio Esposito. Sound design and original music by Tom Kinsella. Artwork by John Hill. The editor was Jasper Corbett. We hope you're enjoying this series. Make sure to follow the feed so you don't miss another episode and check out Tortoise's other award-winning investigative series while you wait for next week's episode.
1: Tortoise.